You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with award-winning novelist and short story writer Jim Shepard. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. In terms of what I'm writing about, in terms of general subjects, I'm always trying to make myself a more interesting human being. And so that means I'm reading a lot about what human beings have gone through, often in historical terms. And I'm coming across these human dilemmas where I'm like, oh my God, what would it have been like to be in that position? And sometimes when someone tells you a story like that over breakfast or something, you think, oh, wow, what a great story. And you never think about it again. Sometimes when somebody tells you a story like that, you can't get it out of your head. You just keep thinking, ah, what would that mother do in that situation? What would I do in that situation? And for me, that's a little signal that, in fact, the narrative that I've come across or the factoid I've come across has snagged my emotional imagination. And I do think that literature is all about extending the empathetic imagination. And so I'm always looking in some ways to educate myself in emotional terms, too. And so I'm very interested in those historical situations that put people in what seem to be impossible positions, because I'm very interested in the way we respond in those situations where it feels like we both have responsibility and we don't have responsibility, because we're so willing to exploit the latter. We're so willing to say, I I didn't have any power in this case. Because of the way I was raised and because of where I come from, I'm very drawn to the worms that I view. I'm very drawn to that situation of feeling as though you have even less power than you actually do. Rather than writing, for example, about what it would be like to be a Roman centurion, I found myself writing about what it would be like to be some poor schlub who's an auxiliary, who's manning Hadrian's wall, who barely has any idea why he's there. That feeling, what am I doing here and how much responsibility do I have? And maybe I can hide behind the fact that I have very little. That feeling is very common to me. I feel that all the time. So that allows me to access some of these far-flung experiences that would seem to be way outside what I can imagine. I'm not one of those people who likes to imagine alternative histories, so I get very squirrely when I'm putting something in a story that isn't historically accurate. The way my work operates separately from history is I have no problem condensing or hybridizing. So, for example, I might have that legionnaire auxiliary on Hadrian's Wall do something that a legionnaire did in Gaul a century earlier that I came across in a source. And I don't feel bad about transposing that action from one place to another, but I wouldn't invent something entirely that it seems to me historically implausible. So I'm trying to learn enough about that world that I can start to pile up details that seem plausible and also create a plausible illusion. I'm not an expert about any of these worlds. So what I'm trying to do is with a minimum of details, make you think that you can see a whole world and understand a sensibility. And usually, as you might guess, the biggest issue with those far-flung worlds is voice. What does a Roman sound like? What does an 18th century Frenchman sound like? And of course, there you're doing an illusion as well, because you're not really presenting those voices, which would seem hopelessly hard to decode for us. You're trying to provide enough cues to the strangeness of it that a modern reader can both appreciate what's going on emotionally, but also say, this is strange in an interesting way, in a coherent way. So what I'll often do if I'm writing about a character like that is try to immerse myself in as many primary texts as I can, as many first-person texts. And of course, there aren't many first-person texts from ancient Rome, but you can, for example, come across compilations of letters home 
from the legions or messages that they all wrote on shards of pottery before they went to battle or something like that. And that's voice. You're literally hearing what they say and how they say it. And so that's the kind of stuff that I'll immerse myself in. But as you might guess, you have to be a pretty serious geek to do stuff like that. I'm often taking books out of the library that very few people, if anybody, has ever taken. My father and my brother were very big movie buffs. And by the time I'd grown up to, say, 18 or so, I had seen thousands of movies or parts of movies. And in fact, I was in many ways more cinematically literate than literarily literate. And that has to push your imagination in a certain direction. If you think about the way point of view operates in fiction, you either have something quite interior and quite ruminative, which is the literary model, right? Let's say... Henry James or Virginia Woolf, where you're inhabiting a mind really, really intricately and you know what it's like to be that sensibility. Or you have an, this sort of Hemingway model where you're trying to understand a person on the basis of their behavior, on the basis of what you can see, and you're getting a minimum of interiority. If you think about Hemingway's Nick Adams stories, which spawned a whole generation of imitators and minimalist writers in America, especially, the idea was what fiction could replicate for you was not, oh, this is what it's like to be in another person's mind, so much as this is what it's like to be alive in America, where you look at somebody and you say, what is going on in Mia's head? I can only figure that out by watching her very, very carefully. I tend towards the latter, which is, I think, the much more cinematic model. Cinema is not very good at interiority. Cinema is really good at behavior, at action, at allowing us to figure out through exterior signals what's going on. This is very appealing for me because I have an interior life of a 10-year-old. Cinema is also very good at spectacle, and it's very good at amazing visuals. The voice I was born into is very much like the one I read, the Project X. I'm a lower middle-class Italian kid from Bridgeport, Connecticut. And so that voice is colloquial and sometimes profane and goofily imprecise at times and stuff like that. I've aspired to all sorts of other different kinds of voices. And of course, whatever strengths and weaknesses I have in my own inherent voice are on display in those. But again, in those cases too, I'm hitching myself to all sorts of research that allow me to essentially sound like somebody else. And it's really just a version of what you do when you say, oh my God, you have to meet my Aunt Mary. She's a hoot. She'll often say something like this. And then you do Aunt Mary. And if you do a pretty good impression, people are like, wow, you don't sound like yourself anymore. You sound like Aunt Mary. And the reason you're able to do that is because you've been paying very close attention. You've honored Aunt Mary by going, I'm going to try and figure what your patterns are. And you take what strengths you have in your own voice and you use them to sound like somebody else. But you don't completely leave yourself ever, especially if you're doing anything extended. You're going to come back to me as obsessions one way or the other. What you're most interested in, Aunt Mary's voice, are those things that you yourself are wrestling with a lot. When reviewers talk about my work, they often say no one subject is like another subject. But when they talk about thematic and emotional things, they go, yeah, he keeps coming back to the same things over and over again, complicity and responsibility and that kind of stuff. That sense that we have that we are this unit that moves through a background and that's the environment is a really destructive sense. And anything that makes us understand that when we say environment, we mean us. So to me, say environmentalist, you're like, yeah, me, essentially. I am part of this matrix, as opposed to like a theater backdrop. That's what the world is, my theater backdrop. Anything that, that demonstrates to us that we're not separate, that if we screw up part of the planet, we're diminishing ourselves in very real and concrete ways is very useful. And feels as though most readers take that in non-fictional terms. But 
People do it in fictional terms as well, all the time, literary terms. Anything that reminds you that your way of seeing the world is idiosyncratic and not the way of seeing the world is wonderful in terms of breaking up that tyranny. So whether it's, I wonder what plants feel, or whether it's like, I wonder what people feel over in Kansas, one way or the other, it's enlarging your sense of scope. If you think about the difference between what happens on TikTok or even what happens on texting and what happens on the page of something you really love, all of that revision that goes on that allows the page to be as beautiful as it seems to you is the person taking themselves from their raw version of themselves to their best version of themselves. That revision process allows us to continually hone what we're trying to say and to continually move from, that isn't exactly what I'm trying to express to, well, that's closer, that's closer, that's closer. And that amount of effort is worthy of the time it takes to do it because it creates a better version of ourselves to be put out there. And it's also worthy of the time it takes you to encounter it. You will spend more time on a page of your favorite prose than you will on TikTok. And that is good for you as well. When you slow down, when you stop and think about just how intricate that sentence is, that's doing something very useful for your brain. It's something TikTok can't and won't do. Part of the reason you're drawn to TikTok is that you know that's not going to happen. So you feel like, now I can relax a little bit. I don't have to concentrate. Concentration is a little bit of work. Um, and sometimes we're up for it. And other times we're like, yeah, I don't need that right now. And we all know that feeling. Somebody says to you, hey, let's go see Oppenheimer. And you go, you know what? I'm not in the mood for that right now. Can we just go see John Wick 4? I just want to relax. That's fine. But there are other moments when you think, no, I want to put in the energy that it takes to negotiate a page of Virginia Woolf's prose. And I'm going to be rewarded for that. My mind is going to be rewarded for that. I'm going to think a little more intricately and a little more intelligently about the world in general because of that. It's so true. You have to pay that bit more attention, but it's almost like love. It's like a marriage or a relationship is... It's a wonderful analogy. Eudora Welty said something like focus, clarity, insight, time, all of the things you need to be a close reader. Those are the attributes of love. And it's exactly like saying your lover comes into the room and you go, look, I don't have time for this right now. Can I just stare at somebody and not worry about what's going on? And you're like, okay, what does that tell you about your values? And certainly reading is on the decline. And that's a huge problem. I'm perfectly willing to believe that novels are in some ways going the way of the dodo. They're not the literary form for the next 100 years. I'm not willing to concede that we all should give up reading and critical thinking, but our culture is pushing us in that direction. I have three children, five years apart, each one of them, and the youngest is 21 years old, and her connection to the phone is way more profound than the oldest one. We all are dependent on our phones now. But that sense we have that we need to be checking it all the time, that sense we have that we will not immerse ourselves in the arts anymore because there might be something on our phone we have to check, that's way more widespread now than it used to be. And anything that can allow them to slow down and hang on to some of the values we've been talking about for the last hour would be something wonderful and heroic and would be helping them fight a holding action against what's coming. There's a favorite line of mine from an old early film noir where somebody says, so, Johnny, is there a way to win? And the film noir hero goes, no, but there's a way to lose more slowly. And I think that's really what we're trying to do. We're trying to lose as slowly as possible. And I think that young people hanging on to what we've been talking about today would help slow down the process dramatically. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.